healthcare is the biggest driver, and um, Bitcoin it was created as a response to the long-term challenges that the U.S. is going to have. People need affordable health coverage, and they're not getting it from the traditional system. When it comes to run-of-the-mill stuff, that's where we really fail, because the run-of-the-mill stuff that should be inexpensive in America, it isn't. Whereas the great thing about the crowd health model is you just pull out of that altogether and say, no, you know, we're going to negotiate those prices. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sovereign Health Podcast. My name is Andy Schoonover, and we're on a mission to inspire radical personal responsibility for both the financial and physical aspects of your health. We get the joy of hosting thought leaders who are reimagining how healthcare is delivered. We're excited to have Ovik Roy on the pod today. He's the president for the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, also known as FreeOp. You can find them at freopp.org. FreeOp is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank focused on improving the lives of Americans in the bottom half of the economic ladder. Ovik, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Hey, man. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Full full disclosure for the the listeners or the viewers, Ovik is on my board. Um, so we, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Primarily thankful because he's just a wealth of knowledge on healthcare. Also, a, a and, huge and we Bitcoin. used to be neighbors. And we, and and we used to be neighbors to go to a fancier neighborhood. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But we are we were neighbors. Uh, we're, we're friends. Um, our wives know each other. So always fun to hang out with with Ovik. Um, so you know, thanks again for for uh, for coming. I. I'd love for you to, you just have such an interesting background. Um, I'd love for you to give folks a little bit of sense of, of where you've been because you've been all over the place. It's, it's an interesting one. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it, it's one of those kids don't try this at home career tracks because I've done <laughs> four different things and, you know, started over a bunch of times and uh, just because I found other things interesting. So I won't, I won't give the long version because it's not that interesting, but uh, uh, you know, grew up in Michigan. I went to to MIT undergrad, majored in molecular biology. Thought I was going to be a scientist. Then I went to med school at Yale. Instead of uh, becoming a physician, I got recruited by a then unknown investment firm called Bain Capital to help them invest in biotech and healthcare companies. Uh, was Mitt around at world. that time? He was. It's kind of the tail end. So he uh, he. He left around the time I got there to run the Salt Lake City Olympics, but um, uh, he'll come back into the story a little bit later. So, so I, I worked at Bain Capital, then uh, J.P. Morgan, a few other places as a healthcare investor uh, with a focus on biotech. And then um, uh, Obama gets elected and uh, starts to start to start to develop Obamacare. I'm like, hey, you know, I don't think this is going to work the way that. Obama and his uh, his friends think it's going to work. Not even from really from a you know it wasn't from a partisan standpoint at all. Just the design of it. Uh, having having invested in insurance companies, knowing knowing how economic incentives work, just uh, the way they were re- trying to re-regulate the uh, insurance market was going to lead to a lot of bad outcomes. Was lead to higher premiums, and particularly for younger men, uh, for people in their twenties male or female, but particularly for men in their 20s and people who are relatively healthy, um, premiums were going to double or triple. And I started writing about this. I got a lot of pushback. Paul Krugman in the New York Times wrote several columns yelling at me and saying what a terrible guy I was. (laughs) Uh, But uh, when the premiums started to come out, when the numbers actually started to come out, uh, that debate went away because, you know, I wasn't guessing. I was basing it on the actual data that the insurers were 
were uh, producing in their filings about what they were planning to charge. And we actually tracked it all. We built an interactive map, which you can probably still find on the internet, where you could compare. You put in your zip code and your age and your gender, and you could put in what insurance cost you in 2013 and what it cost you in 2014 and see the exact kind of median price increase that you were going to see for that. Um, so I uh, did a lot of work in healthcare policy. Uh, Mitt Romney, when he ran for president the second time in 2012, asked me to uh, help uh, advise him on his health care plan, both how to re- repeal and replace Obamacare, but also how to reform Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, he lost, obviously, so I thought I was going to go back to Wall Street after that. And I didn't because people started asking me, OK, what's your plan now that Obamacare is going to happen? And I said, well, it's pretty simple. Let's let's try to show how markets and competition can deliver universal health care. Why does it have to be single payer? There are other ways to make sure that every American can afford health insurance. Got a lot of blank stares. And so I realized <laughs> if I didn't do it myself, no one was going to do it. So I spent the next two years, you know, living hand to mouth, basically writing this health care plan, health reform plan. And then I thought I was going to go back to Wall Street, but then the 2016 candidates started calling. And uh, one of those uh, 2016 candidates who called to ask for my advice was Rick Perry, who was then the governor of Texas. And uh, he offered me the job running his entire policy team, not just health care. And, and, um, and so that was really a cool opportunity, not just be a healthcare guy, but to, to, to look at everything. And so I moved to Austin in 2015. And shortly after that, you and I met and um, obviously, Rick Perry didn't win the win the presidential election. Uh, I worked for Marco Rubio at Center from Florida after Perry dropped out, and then after Rubio uh, uh, dropped out himself, uh, I started this think tank called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity because I felt that a lot of the ideas that I found interesting about how to solve the problems faced by middle income and lower income Americans were not being addressed by either party, and I felt there was a an opportunity to say, hey, there are ways to deploy economic and individual freedom to solve these problems, but but uh, these are problems that otherwise the people who other, otherwise philosophically aligned with me aren't really working on, um, mm-hmm. like healthcare, like housing, uh, like monetary inflation, uh, a bunch of things like that, and and um, and so we started this think tank that 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 basically our our mission is to expand economic opportunity to those who least have it using free enterprise, individual liberty, technological innovation, and pluralism. And we require that everything we work on has to meet two tests. It has to result in a net expansion of liberty, and it has to improve the lives of Americans on the bottom half of the ladder. And if it doesn't do those two things, we won't work on it. Mm. And uh, with those two tests involved, we don't just work on healthcare. We work in 12 policy areas, including um, uh, Bitcoin and financial regulation, housing policy, trade and immigration, education reform, higher ed reform, criminal justice reform, a bunch of different things. You can go to our website and check it all out. It's freopp.org, freeopp.org, but one E, F-R-E-O-P-P. So I, got, I have to ask, Ovik, given kind of where we're at legislatively on the federal level, is is what you're doing even possible or is it kind of a pipe dream? I mean, it, it seems to me maybe I'm being the skeptic here, the, the, the libertarian in me says anything coming from the federal government typically is, is pretty, pretty nonsense, you know? And so you talk about liberty, that's, that's gotta be one of the main components of what you all work on. And while the, the right says they're for liberty, you know, liberty freedoms, um, they were just as bad. And, you know, a lot of these anti-liberty type of, 
legislative acts as the left was. You know, let's go back to COVID or go back farther and talk about the Patriot Act or, you know, a lot of these these legislative things that have gone through or, you know, some of those were not legislative, they were executive orders in terms of COVID things, but the the uh, the governors on the right did pretty much the same thing as the governors on the left generally. Um, maybe maybe duration was a little bit different and things like that, but they all they all locked us down. And then it feels like the, from the on the left, I don't think liberty is kind of even in their their vernacular. <laughs> um, and so, like, can you successfully expand liberty in a legislative environment in which you know both the the, the left and right either kind of say they're for it, but they're not really for it when it, you know, takes control away from them. One side doesn't seem to be be for it. You know, it feels like the federal government can take care of anything. It's a long, quite, long way of just asking is, is what you're doing like reasonable? Like, is it, is it doable? Well, or am I just uh, being skeptical? Short answer. Short answer is yes. And the, <laughs> uh, I, I assumed you're going to say that, given that you're working hard at that. But I was just, I'm, I'm curious as well, to your kind of your. Yeah, your, I'll, your, I'll, I'll give you some. So lib- libertarians tend to be pessimistic people. At least all the libertarians I know, they're always angry about stuff. Right? It's very easy if you can. You have tell where a, I fall politically. Over cor- cor- <laughs> believe me, I have, have many, many libertarian friends. And look, any of us who care about the underlying values of our country, if you really believe in those values strongly, you're going to be upset about all the ways in which an imperfect country comprised of imperfect individuals fails to live up to those mm-hmm. perfect ideals. That's true of that's true of liberty. That's true of Christianity. That's true of Marxism. It's true of true of any yeah, true. any philosophy you have. Uh, you know, you, you know, if you, if you feel if you believe it strongly, it's very easy to get frustrated and depressed if you spend all your time thinking about the ways we fall short. Mm. And we do fall short. There's no doubt about it. And there are ways in which government is expanding and liberty is shrinking. But just to give some simple examples, you know, Jimmy Carter, not really thought of as a libertarian president, he deregulated the airlines. And everything that we value today about air travel comes from this landmark deregulation of commercial air travel that Jimmy Carter installed when in his short four years as president. Bill Clinton, uh, when he was president, he signed into law this this bill called the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which most people haven't heard of and wasn't even really covered that aggressively at the time, but was a landmark piece of legislation that created in many ways the modern internet. I mean, the internet precedes 1996, but in terms of the internet that we use every day, the fact that we can use you know, that Time Warner cable and Comcast and AT&T and all these companies can compete to provide us with broadband internet services. That all comes out of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, among other things. So there have been times, uh, and I could list many, many, many times where there have been reforms of whether they've been legislative reforms in terms of congressional statutory action, or they've been executive branch presidential rulemakings that have actually done a lot to open up markets. Uh, look at free trade. Um, you know, it's become very fashionable these days to bash free trade, but, and, and you're a young guy, Andy, so this is part of the challenge. I'm a little older than you, but, you know, when I was a kid, free trade wasn't the, the, the dominant uh, regime in the world. Um, you know, the North American Free Trade Agreement, when it was being negotiated by George H.W. Bush more than 30 years ago, was pretty controversial. Then this guy, Bill Clinton, comes along and says, hey, 
You know, I like free trade, which at that time was not a democratic position. Democrats tended to side with labor unions, and labor unions were against free trade because they didn't mm-hmm. like the competition. The UAW in Detroit, where I grew up, they hated the fact that people bought Japanese cars and were trying to do everything they could to prevent people from buying Japanese cars. They didn't like free trade. Uh, but eventually, free trade became this bipartisan consensus because uh, free trade led to a lot of economic growth for Americans. A lot of products that we made here in this country got sold everywhere else. Yes, we imported a lot of stuff too, but uh, it worked for both sides. Now that 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 consensus is starting to come apart in both directions. Uh, but that that's an example of uh, both the president and the Congress working together to make the economy freer, not less free. So when we when we talk about you know the government getting bigger and it is getting bigger in certain ways it's getting bigger in terms of how much money is being taken out of our pockets and being spent on our behalf that's mm-hmm. the biggest way in which the government's getting bigger and there are uh, ways in which the uh, particularly the amount of federal regulations the sheer quantity of them and the cost they impose in the economy that's getting bigger um, so so there are elements of how uh, how government's getting bigger and that's a concern but uh, your question was, can we have any hope at all that things can get better? And the answer is absolutely yes. There are plenty of examples of times when Congress or the president or a state, depending on the policy area, have expanded freedom. Just to give one from the last 12 months, there's been this incredible wave of reforms in school choice and education reform, where, for example, in Arizona, they passed a law uh, over the winter uh, where, or actually last year, where now, instead of being forced to go to the school in the neighborhood you live in, every kid who wants wants it or every family who wants it can draw the money that would otherwise go to that local school and take it to fund their own education. They can go to a, a private school. They can buy Khan Academy uh, videos. They can, you know, do do whatever they want. Uh, uh, they can they they can educate their kid in the way that they think is best. And if if the school if they love the school that, that that's near in their neighborhood, great. But if they don't, they have enormous options. And also, by the way, entrepreneurs can now develop new products that that uh, that cater to those students in ways that are going to drive enormous innovation in K through twelve education. So that's an example where you know there's massive improvement in educational freedom. The Supreme Court uh, is doing a lot of interesting things to expand freedom and and clear out some of the old. Uh, uh, regulations that are unconstitutional always have been, but the courts never really tried to do anything about it. So there are definitely areas for optimism, and and I think what Crowd Health is doing is an example of that. So so absolutely, there's there's reason to be optimistic. So I get bigger question or higher level question: Do you do you feel like the United States is getting freer in aggregate or less free? Like where where are we? Where is the trajectory going? That's a great question, and I think it's hard to it's hard to answer objectively um, because there's so many different components of freedom. But if we look at one of my favorite sources of, of thinking about this question, which is um, the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, which is a, it's a great a great website from a think tank I'm increasingly disagreeing with because they're going in an anti-freedom direction in many ways, particularly with their leadership. But this particular um, uh, uh, piece of, of research they do that a particular guy at Heritage does, it's called the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom. And they've been doing this every year for, I want to say, 30 years now. 
and they rank all 180 countries in the world on on, on their economic freedom. And uh, uh, when uh, Obama first got into office in 2008, I think the U.S. ranked number six. I think the U.S. now is like, I have to look it up. They're like number 21 or something like that. Wow. Um, so there's been a steady decline uh, of the U.S.'s relative and absolute scores on uh, uh, on the rankings. Actually, the United States is 25th, 25. So the top four countries are Singapore, Switzerland, Ireland, and Taiwan. And the U.S. has fallen all the way to number 25 in the, in the current. And what survey. are the primary drivers of that? They score countries on uh, four different dimensions or categories, the rule of law, the size of government, regulatory efficiency, and open markets. And uh, if, you, if you drill down, there's like three, three big buckets uh, underneath all that. Anyone could, who's following along, you just go to heritage.org slash index, and you can see the survey. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rule of law, they look at property rights, judicial effectiveness, and government integrity. For government size, it's tax burden, government spending, and fiscal health. For regulatory efficiency, it's business freedom, labor freedom, and monetary freedom. And for open markets, it's trade freedom, investment freedom, and financial freedom. So where we score very badly is on government spending and fiscal health. Uh, tax burden, you know, we do okay because our, our taxes as a share of GDP is actually not that bad. It's the fact that we spend so much and that creates a deficit that that's yeah. a big problem for us. Um, property rights, we're actually, we score very well on property rights uh, relative to other countries um, and relatively high on business freedom. So, um, you know, we, we do okay in a lot of these areas. It's, it's the government spending and the fiscal stuff where we do really, really badly. And I think for many of us, we care a lot about the fiscal side of it. So that that plays the biggest role in our minds and, and, and it, as it should, because ultimately mm-hmm. that's a massive threat to our long-term freedom, particularly, you know, you and I both have young children. Our kids' freedom is particularly um, being driven by the deficit and the debt. And um, that's why healthcare policy and Bitcoin are two of my favorite topics, because uh, healthcare is the biggest driver of our deficit debt. The biggest driver of our deficit and debt is the growth in government healthcare spending. And um, Bitcoin, it was created as a response to the long-term challenges that the U.S. is going to have on this front. In in that Heritage Freedom Index, was there any healthcare-related components to that? I mean, in terms of, did they they talk about it? Yeah, do they, they, do they evaluate the healthcare systems as a you know product of of freedom or or liberty? I'm just just curious, they, and not to spend do, our entire time not. on this this thing. No, I'm they, just they curious where. Yeah, if, if you're looking for something that does that, actually, my think tank, FreeOp, we have a, uh, a, a, a an index that does that. It's called uh, the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, or WIHI. So if you go to wihi.freopp.org, you'll see our index, which is which is looking at the healthcare systems of the top. We don't look at every all 180 countries. We look at the top 32 high-income countries with a population mm-hmm. over 5 million. Um, and you and just came out with that, is, what, in March? Ovic, the most recent one is from March, yeah. March. So we, we've, okay. done, we've done this every year for the last three years, and uh, it's a huge research effort. And we look at fiscal sustainability in the context of healthcare as well, but we also look at the quality because, you know, most people have heard these talking points like, oh, you know, America, we spend the most on healthcare, but we have the worst outcomes and the wor- mm-hmm. worst life expectancy, blah, 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 blah. 
that's not the part. The fact that we we spend the most is true, but we don't have the worst outcomes of the developed world. We have decent outcomes for the developed world. They're not they're not terrible. Um, the biggest problem with our system is how expensive it is, and particularly how much the the expense of it is driving the deficit and the debt. Mm-hmm. But also, the if you're a consumer and you're paying for your own health insurance, how expensive it is. We do really well on innovation. You know, most of these surveys that rank our healthcare system don't take into account either fiscal sustainability or the scientific and technological innovation pieces. They did. They only look at how many people have health insurance and how socialized is it. So that they really bias the way they look at the healthcare system. But if you look at it in terms of health outcomes, patient choice, science and technology and fiscal sustainability. Mm. The U.S. does really, really well on science and technology. We're by far the the best country in the world on that. Um, We do okay on choice and quality. Not awesome. We do okay. I'd say B plus, B minus-ish, or, you know, B plus to B. And then on fiscal sustainability, we're actually the worst country in the 32 uh, countries that we rank. Does not shock me. So that's where we really fail is the fiscal side and the cost side in healthcare. And that's why uh, that's why you you do what you do, Andy, because uh, people need affordable health coverage and they're not getting it from the traditional system. So I read the uh, article that you wrote back in, I think it was March. And what I came away with is um, if looked at in aggregate, the United States healthcare system isn't all that bad. Right, what are we, eleventh or something like that? Out of the, how many countries did you do? Do you evaluate thirty-five or? We we evaluate thirty-two, and 32. in our most recent survey, yeah, U.S. was eleventh. Which you know, it leads me to believe it's not all bad, and you and you can you you. It's interesting to me when people um, try to tell us that the U.S. healthcare system is awful, and and the graph that you always see is. We have, you know, the highest amount of dollars spent by a wide margin, and we have some of the lo- lowest uh, life expectancies. You know, and and so people, in I, I try to say this kindly, but in their simplicity, um, I think mix up a little bit of the cause and the effect of this. <laughs> you know, and and there's some other variables too here that I think are are worthwhile to point out, which is. The United States also has the number one obesity rate, or one of the top five obesity rates. I mean, there's, a, 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 I think it's the the number one in the developed countries. There's like yeah, among some advanced others. countries, yeah, yeah. yeah. Among, there's some others that have higher, but it's it's typically very very small um, co- countries. And so I wonder what would happen, and maybe there's the analysis of this, if you adjusted all of these numbers to normalize obesity, meaning. If you looked at our expenses, um, our life expectancy, and you adjusted down towards, you know, what would the United States look like in some of these key metrics if our obesity rates weren't, uh, the the OECD data that I saw was something like 75% of people were overweight (laughs) in the United States versus the next one down was like 56% overweight. So I mean, there's a pretty big gap. So we're 50% more overweight per capita than other countries. And so I'm just wondering if you take a look at that and say, hey, maybe the food or the you know lifestyle choices that we're making 
have a much greater impact on some of the outcomes that we're seeing than the actual system that we're a part of, if that makes sense. I mean, everything that I hear is the Saudi royal family has a entire level of, you know, uh, the major hospital system in New York because they fly here to come and get all of their, you know, procedures done. You know, if you want to have can, if you have cancer, you don't want to have cancer. If you have cancer, you have a heart problem, you have some, you want to be in the United States. From my, from, from, from the data that I have seen, where am I, where's my analysis going awry here? Well, we, we try to ask and answer that question in, in the world index of healthcare innovation. We try to ask and answer that question in a uh, slightly different way, but but I think you'll appreciate where we're headed, where, where, where my head is. So we asked the question, what are the, the outcomes that a healthcare system can accomplish, right? So life expectancy is a very crude thing to assign an outcome to assign to the healthcare system because a lot of other things can affect life expectancy, right? So if you die in a car crash, that's not the fault of the healthcare system. Right. If you decide to eat cheeseburgers three times a day and uh, get diabetes and a heart attack as a result, that's not, the healthcare system did not make you eat the cheeseburgers, right? So uh, in that way, what we try to say is, um, we don't look at it like, let's adjust for obesity. We, we look at it like, when you are sick, when the healthcare system is in a position to do something about what's whatever is wrong with you, how does the healthcare system do? So if you have diabetes, how good is the system at managing it? Mm -hmm. If you have a heart attack or you have cancer, how long do you live in, in this country versus that country? And what you find when you look at that is that the U.S. does all right. The U.S. is very good in particular at ultra rare diseases that's where the fancy, you know, all the fancy money that we spend on everything really helps out. If you have a complex or rare condition, you know, it's it's best to be sick in the U.S. But when it comes to run-of-the-mill stuff, that's where we really fail because the run-of-the-mill stuff that should be inexpensive in America, uh, it isn't. It's incredibly costly. So uh, if you have, you know, the, the outcomes might be good, uh, but uh, the the cost relative to the outcomes is where things go wrong. So if you have a heart attack in Canada versus the U.S., your outcomes might be about the same, but the U.S. version will cost you 10 to right. 100x what it costs you in Canada. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have some rare form of leukemia, you'd much, much rather be in the U.S. because the Canadian hospital probably is going to send you there anyway. Yeah, I, I guess... My other question would be, what is the probability of you having a heart attack if you live in the United States versus you live in Spain, for example? And the probability of you having a heart attack is higher in the United States than if you are to le you right. know, live in any of the kind of Western European countries. And I, my argument would be because of terrible lifestyle choices that we as Americans typically make. And one of the things that I think is interesting, I'm, I'm going to kind of correlate this to health insurance a little bit, and these are all anecdotal. We have, I had just I had a guy yesterday uh, who joined Crowd Health a while ago and said, you wouldn't believe the improvements that I've seen since joining Crowd Health because I'm not relying upon my insurance anymore. And so he was, took, he sent me a picture 
from the beach with him and his wife who were just in a triathlon. And he's like, I was a hundred pounds overweight. And now I just came in fourth in my, my triathlon and my wife won her, her age group in her triathlon. And so my, my, I'm just wondering to what extent are, these are very hard correlations to make. So I'm not, I'm not asking for anything definitive, but I think there is something where if you take personal responsibility for the costs associated with your healthcare, um, you know, and you can't just push them off onto a health insurance plan, you are now incentivized to act in a way that lowers cost for yourself and therefore improves your, your health. I may be making a stretch. I've heard this from a dozen people who are part of crowd health. And so a dozen out of 5,000 is probably not a big enough N to, to make a conclusive statement here. But I think there's something there that people, if they, if they are forced to take personal responsibility for their health bills, will act differently because now they are going to be more directly impacted by the outcomes that they will, that they will be receiving. What are your thoughts? I think there's some truth to that. Um, I wouldn't completely oversell it in that, you know, in all these other countries, they have universal health insurance too. Mm -hmm. It's less expensive and somehow they manage to not be as obese. So I think there are other factors. But but one thing I'll mention that's kind of related is um, the insurance model in the U.S. where uh, you have insurance and you might have a different insurance next year, the year after that create some perverse incentives. So mm-hmm. take something like Ozempic. Now, <laughs> you know, best way to lose weight is to run a triathlon, triathlon, not to take Ozempic. But if you're morbidly obese, you're not necessarily, triathletes, your triathlon is not going to be your, your first step on the road to recovery, right? For most, for most people who are morbidly obese. And Ozempic can be really helpful, actually. There's a lot of research coming out now that uh, these drugs are um, pretty safe. And the, the health outcomes you get from losing the weight and the improvement in your cardiovascular and, and metabolic and diabetic kind of uh, 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 lab values and, and other things is pretty tremendous in terms of the life uh, extension and health uh, benefits. And um, insurance is not wanted to pay for it because they're like, these are weight loss drugs and we don't want to pay for weight loss drugs. That's just cosmetic, right? Uh, but part of it, if you're an insurance company is, I'm going to be the one paying for this very expensive drug that costs, you know, 700 bucks a month or whatever it costs. But it's going to be 20 years from now when that patient is on Medicare Mm -hmm. that the savings are going to come in because they're going to live longer and they're not going to have the heart attack. And so as the insurance company, you don't benefit economically from helping that patient's long-term health. Somebody else is going to benefit. Some other either the, the Medicare program or some other insurer down the line when you change jobs or whatever it is, they're going to benefit. And so the insurance companies are making, in, the, in a sense, an economically rational decision to say, you know what, if, yeah, like if you have a heart attack today, we'll take care of that. But if, if you're asking me to give you a drug that's going to make you healthier 20 years down the road, then that's not as much in our interests. And this is where a more independent model, consumer-driven model is really helpful because you then as the patient, the consumer can say, I know this is better for my long-term health. And if I'm paying the insurance companies less and and taking the money myself to spend on my own health, I'm going to use that for my long-term health. So I think that's the big power of the consumer-driven model. Yeah. um, This Ozempic one is interesting because 
I, I hear what you're saying. I also think that we as a society generally have this desire for a drug to fix us. Yeah. You know, and, and, and yeah. instead of, instead of making, you know, healthy lifestyle choices, which part of it is in education. I think a part of this is people just don't know what a healthy lifestyle choice is. Um, you know, uh, we can take a drug and just, you know, shed the weight. And I think there's, and I think that I think where I probably fall out on this is there are probably places where this makes sense, but the vast majority of the time it doesn't. Um, and I've also seen studies come out that said of the weight loss of the, of the weight that you lose, a big chunk of it is, is muscle mass. Um, and I'm a huge, uh, Dr. Peter Atia fan. I think you're, you're, a, you're a fan of his too. I think he's come out and said, look, if you lose 10% of your body weight, 10% uh, of your fat, but lose 20% of your muscle, then you're actually getting worse. You're worse off than when you started. Um, because that muscle mass to, to, to fat ratio is something that in terms of longevity is a very good predictor of, of how long you're going to live and your, your health span. So it's really hard, a, a hard topic because part of me is like, yeah, I want, you know, folks who are four or five or 600 pounds to live longer. I also want people to be educated and, and thinking like, okay, how, how can I take personal responsibility for this and, yeah. and impact this myself? You know, it's just, we, 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 we generally run to prescription drugs. And I think from my personal perspective, I love your perspective on this. It's what we've done for the last three years through some of this COVID stuff is we've run to the pharmaceutical companies to say, save us. Um, and instead of doing maybe some other things that might be, have been more effective. And so I'm going to bring you into the COVID COVID rabbit hole. And maybe you've already made public statements about this, but as you look back over the last three years, how did we do? Um, well, we did pretty badly. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think, I think that that should uh, be pretty obvious now to, to most people. But um, you know, at FreeUp in my think tank, we were fighting this fight in 2020. You know, we were making uh, arguments in 2020 that uh, this public health uh, dogma that that uh, that came out that, you know, we have to close the schools and close down the economy. And that's the only way to save people from COVID uh, was totally wrong. And, 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 and it was totally wrong. I, I said that not because I'm a pro-freedom guy ideologically. I said it because scientifically it wasn't going to work. Um, and I think, you know, you, you started, you, you know, in the opening of this, of our recording, you, you mentioned, well, you know, everybody locked down. There wasn't that big of a difference between blue and red states. And there was a big difference. I mean, was there? It, oh, yeah, there absolutely was. I mean, you know, I, I, what Texas did relative to what New York did or California did, huge differences. I mean, you know, being able to send our kids to school, you couldn't do that in New York or California. Um, the businesses remaining open. Yes, there were masks. You had to wear masks and things like that. But, uh, you know, the businesses didn't have to, you know, they weren't forced to do that. Um, and, and so we had a much more balanced situation in, in Austin or in Texas compared to other places. And you know, okay, was that, was that across that the red open. states? I'm just curious because I know that Texas and Florida, you know, typically the bellwether, or at least recently the, the bellwether mm -hmm. red states, right. Um, took, I think, a, a more freedom, Liberty type of approach to this, 
How how did that next tier of red state go? Um, yeah, I mean, it it wasn't just Texas and Florida. I okay. mean, there, there were uh, some of the mid-sized and small states were were right up there. Like okay. South Dakota was an example of a state that never locked down. They did they they were more they stayed open to a larger degree than Texas and Florida did. Um, uh, Georgia was another state that uh, that stayed open. In fact, Brian Kemp, the governor there, was getting massacred in uh, in the mainstream media for 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 keeping businesses and schools open. Uh, he, he did that before Abbott did. Abbott was much more, the governor of Texas was much more uh, cautious relative to Georgia and South Dakota and Florida, actually. So, so yeah, I, I mean, red states and, and blue, I mean, there, there were some places that were in between. So, for example, Ohio had a Republican governor, but uh, did, did, did lock down. Uh, Massachusetts had a Republican governor, of course, a more liberal state, uh, locked down. And there were some uh, blue states, like Colorado had a Democratic governor, but uh, didn't lock down aggressively, was sort of kind of in the Ohio-Massachusetts realm. So it wasn't, it wasn't purely binary. Um, but as a country, we locked down quite a bit. So one of the things we actually measure in the World Index of Healthcare Innovation was pandemic performance. And um, what we measured was death rate from COVID relative to how much you locked down relative to how how many how much how isolated or integrated your country was to the rest of the world in terms of travel and commerce so mm-hmm. for example um, New Zealand and Australia but particularly New Zealand did very well early on in terms of uh, having low covid rates but that's because like how many people are flying into New Zealand right <laughs> like very few people uh, and so it's pretty easy to keep covid out if you could just kind of sh- basically shut down your immigration system, right? Um, uh, whereas the U.S., you know, we're getting people in from Asia, we're getting people in from Europe all the time, and it was just impossible to close it down. So we, we tried to grade on a curve in that way in our evaluation of the United States. But we, and we also tried to grade, grade on a curve of how much did you lock down your society? So if you had a high death rate and you locked down versus you had a high death rate and you didn't lock down, we're going to grade that second country better under our approach. Right. Um, the problem with the U.S. was that we had a very high death rate and we did lock down, Again, you know, not so much in Texas and Florida. But if you actually average it across the whole country, a lot of our major population centers are on the coasts and in Illinois, Chicago, like those places were blue, blue cities or blue states. So they did lock down. And so the actual amount of locking down the U.S. did, if you aggregate it and average it out, was actually quite high compared to Europe and Asia. So uh, and our results were worse. Um, and and that's and that's really <laughs> pretty tragic, especially when you consider that we're the ones who who uh, launched the, the vaccine was first launched in the United States, and we had a head start in that sense of cleaning everything up. Now I know lots of people uh, are very skeptical of vaccines, but the vaccines statistically did a lot to reduce deaths and serious illness from COVID. That's just a fact. And yes, um, if you're younger. Uh, where you're probably not going to die of COVID anyway. It's probably not a big deal whether you get vaccinated or not. But for people, you know, on the upper half of the spectrum age-wise, the vaccine saved a lot of lives. And, um, you know, because of the of the lack of trust that the public health community earned in this country by doing a lot of things they did, um, you know, we got to a point where a lot of people have been very skeptical of vaccines. That led to a lot of deaths in, uh, in 2021 uh, and 2022 that otherwise could have been avoided. 
Why, why did the United States do so poorly in terms of deaths? So deaths per capita in the United States was one of the highest. Why is that? Have, have we had any come to any conclusions on that? I mean, the the the, the uh, in the in the second half of the pandemic, it was really the the vaccine skepticism that drove a lot of it. Uh, because if you just look at our vaccination rates, they were lower. And the places where the the states, for example, where the death rates were the highest in 2022, were the states where the vaccination rates were the lowest. So there was a clear correlation there. Uh, whereas in the first half of the pandemic, 2020 to like you know early 2021, before the vaccines got really widespread. There, our death rates were not awesome, but they weren't, you know, as bad as uh, from a relative standpoint as they ended up. Um, uh, so, so you know, we did we did worse as time went on, um, and uh, th- that was really driven by the vaccines. In terms of why we did so badly early on, uh, why we didn't do better, um, it's really hard to say. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that that that, uh, that are hard to tease out. Um, I, I think my working um, hypothesis is that uh, the the original SARS coronavirus, the one that uh, went through Asia in the 2000s, great, created a, a level of immunity in those populations mm-hmm. that we didn't have because we never experienced the original SARS-CoV-1. Uh, it was just then called SARS-CoV, but now that we have SARS-CoV-2, um, the SARS-CoV-1 vaccine, and then there was also the Middle Eastern respiratory virus, MERS, in the Arabian countries. And so if you look at death rates in, say, the UAE uh, and and places like that, and the death rates in Asia, like Japan, Taiwan, places like that, Singapore, they all did really, really well. And um, even though their lockdowns weren't that draconian, and my my theory is that those places, because the, these less lethal coronaviruses went through the first time around, um, their populations had that residual immunity, whereas the U.S., we didn't. And so when this more lethal coronavirus came through, we we got the short end of the stick. Do you I'm going I'm to continue on a theme that I have almost in every one of these these talks, and it's about metabolic health and how the United States metabolically is much more. Yeah, that, that was another factor too. I think many of your your listeners and, and viewers will know that uh, obese uh, individuals were disproportionately the ones who had the most the worst outcomes, and and we obviously do bad in that category as well. So that's definitely a factor. Yeah, I mean, it's one of our core missions. Is you know, can we get people to think about their metabolic health? Because mm-hmm. there's two components to this, right? There's price, which Clearly, we can talk about why prices are so much higher in the United States than than anywhere else. But there's also um, utilization. You know, how much do we mm-hmm. utilize uh, the healthcare services? And yeah. you know, we have a, a a country that is, like I said earlier, almost it's high seventies in terms of overweight. Um, I think it's almost eighty percent overweight, as as determined by these OECD, which is the Organization of Economic what Cooperation and Development is that what it is? Yep. It's thirty exactly some odd right. countries from all over the world, all mm-hmm. kinds of different um, mostly demographics. advanced developed countries. Yeah, yeah, advanced. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I keep kind of going back to you've got to have got to take a look at the health of the population when evaluating some of these metrics 
because it does impact. I mean, as you said, it was the the folks who are overweight um, were um, adversely or more adversely affected than the folks of of normal weight. Um, folks with diabetes, it feels like were absolutely hammered by by COVID. Um, and there's a correlation there too between weight, not a perfect correlation, but a correlation. And so it's it's continuing to kind of think of our system within this lifestyle choices that Amer- Americans are making that are significantly worse than than lifestyle choices of of others. And we can kind of get to ingredients in our foods are different and things like that. But there's a general kind of lifestyle difference. Um, who's who who out there is doing it well? Is there anybody who's got this system? healthcare system down that is is doing it really well if we're 11 there's 10 there's 10 others that are doing it better than us like who are the top two or three and like what are they doing that is so much more effective than what we're doing and is there a path for us to move that that direction or should everybody just join crowd health (laughs) <laughs> well, definitely uh, Crowd Health is an awesome product and, and I've, I've been glad to see it and proud to see it grow. And you've been doing a lot of great work. Uh, in terms of your question, the, um, the top four countries in our, in our ranking this year uh, were Switzerland, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Germany. Um, and in particular, Switzerland's been number one all three years. We, we started doing this in 2020. So uh, the current survey is the 2022 index. In all three years, Switzerland was number one, and uh, Ireland, Netherlands, and, and Germany have also done pretty well consistently throughout uh, our surveys. And what's interesting about those top four countries is that they all have universal health insurance, but not through a single-payer system, not through a government-run system. They all basically have a system in which private insurers or private you know, health health care and what you spend on health care is 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 controlled by the private sector, not by the pu- public sector. Um, so, uh, and, and the country that I think of those four that's the most relevant for American purposes is Switzerland, because what Switzerland does that's really interesting is they have a system where everybody buys their own insurance. You don't get it through an employer. You don't get it through the government. You shop for your own insurance plan. And dozens of insurers compete for your business, and you choose the one that you like. You you want a high deductible or a low deductible? Which brand do you want, et cetera? Um, and and uh, you know, a, a, a typical a typical insurance plan that would cost like twelve hundred bucks a month here costs like two hundred bucks a month in Switzerland. So even though they're a very wealthy country, the cost of living is pretty high in Switzerland. Uh, their health insurance is way less expensive. And you want to talk about people who believe in exercise, you know, the Swiss, they don't just ski down the mountains. They climb up the mountain and then ski <laughs> down the mountain. They don't take lifts. You know, they don't believe in that sort of thing. That's lifts are for wussies. So uh, the Switzerland uh, are very uh, a very outdoorsy, very healthy population. But they all, the reason why their healthcare system is so efficient and so um, inexpensive is not just because people are healthy, but because they don't charge a lot for, they don't have to charge as much for these very expensive things. We have a system where we incentivize uh, doctors and hospitals and drug companies to charge way more for the same services than what those services cost in a Switzerland or a Germany or Netherlands or Ireland. And so where are the costs going to getting stripped out? You know, what, the, between us and Switzerland, it's a, it's one, one is Switzerland's so under 10 million people. So it's a little bit of a different 
kind of and I'm, yeah, I'm, well, I'm 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 sure i'm assuming switzerland is a bit more homogeneous um than than the united states so there's probably a component there too but i mean they're half is it half of what we spend per capita is that about right uh yeah well first of all let me just say switzerland has four or five official languages you know the u.s okay. has one or two depending on if you count spanish uh so, you know, it is a, actually an ethnically a quite a diverse place. Um, Singapore, another great healthcare system, they have, you know, four official languages too, and ethnically also very diverse. You know, you have the, the Malays, the Indians, the Chinese, um, and what's the fourth group I'm, I'm blanking. Uh, but, they, but they have, um, you know, uh, a lot of these countries are actually more diverse than you think. Now, they don't have, the, the, one of the things that we have is the legacy of slavery and segregation and the underclass that that emerged from that. That's a unique problem to the U.S. or a relatively unique problem to the U.S. And um, if you actually uh, if you actually uh, control for that in the statistics and say um, if we if we if we look at the descendants of victims of slavery and segregation as a discrete population. And everyone else is another discrete population. The statistics on outcomes look very different, mm -hmm. which goes to show you that one of the things that, there, you know, averages are always a dangerous thing. You have to look at populations. And, um, you know, if, if, if you live in um, an upper middle class suburb, uh, your health outcomes are pretty similar to the outcomes in a lot of these other countries. But what's different is the price of the health care in the U.S., regardless of whether you're poor or wealthy or what part of the country you live in or what your race or ethnicity is, what we pay for healthcare is way more expensive. There's a famous article written by a Princeton economist named Uwe Reinhardt, who passed away a few years ago, uh, that he wrote in, I think, 2003 or 2004 called It's the Prices Stupid. So Bill Clinton used <laughs> to say it's the economy stupid. So uh, Uwe Reinhardt wrote this article called It's the Prices Stupid. And his whole point is, if you look at the utilization of healthcare, like how many times do we go to the doctor? How many times do we go to the hospital? How many prescription drugs do we use? How many lab tests do we order? We're not actually that different from other countries. In fact, mm -hmm. in certain ways, we're we're actually we we utilize healthcare less uh, in certain on, on certain measures than other countries do. The difference between us and these other countries is that the MRI costs ten times as much here as it does in Switzerland. The the day you spend in the hospital costs five times as much here as it does in Switzerland. Um, the drug that you that you use costs three times as much here as it does in Switzerland. So it's not so much about the volume of healthcare that we consume or about the relative health status, the obesity and things like that. It's much more about if you do get sick, what our system charges you, the unit prices are much higher. And why is that? It's because we have this completely messed up system where the patient or the consumer is completely divorced from shopping. So if you think about every other product you buy, uh, you buy a cell phone, you buy car insurance, whatever it is, there's lots of different people you can buy that product from. And you know, you may be just an Apple person or an Android person and not really care. You're just gonna buy the new iPhone and you don't really care how much it costs. But if you're Samsung and Apple and you're fighting for that 10% of the market that is persuadable one way or the other, you're competing all the time on getting, making sure your prices are competitive, or your your your, you know the 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 attributes, the features of your of your software and hardware are better than the other guy, um, and that price competition is incredibly important. And uh, 
We don't have that because even if you're in the so-called private sector system in this country, which is typically you're employed and you get insurance through your employer, you didn't choose that insurance plan. Some HR bureaucrat at your company chose the insurance plan with you, not your interests in mind, but with the company's interests in mind, and then handed it to you. And you don't know how much that insurance plan costs. You just are handed this piece of paper that says you have insurance. Mm. You don't know how much is being taken out of your paycheck to pay for that. In fact, I remember when I worked at the Manhattan Institute, I actually asked, I'm like, you know, I asked HR, can you look it up for me? Because I want to know how much is being taken out of my paycheck for this. Because like, they didn't know either. They had to look it up. So, you know, it, it's uh, uh, that's a stupid system, right? Because imagine a system in which health insurance worked like car insurance or homeowner's insurance or anything else where it's your money, you buy the insurance you want, and if the insurance is too expensive, you go to the next uh, company and you buy their insurance instead. And in that system, the insurers, their incentive is to give you the best product because if they don't, on a price and quality and value standpoint, you're going to go to the, their competitors. That's not how it works with employer-based insurance because the HR bureaucrat doesn't really care whether it's the cheapest product or not. In fact, sometimes they're incentivized to give you the most expensive product because they don't want you to leave to go somewhere else. And, and if you, oh, I've got these yeah. beautiful benefits, I can't go to that startup like crowd totally health. I gotta up. stay working for Apple or whatever. So th that, and that, the reason why we have that system is because of the tax code. The tax code creates this massive tax break if your, if your employer buys insurance for you uh, that you don't benefit from if you would buy insurance on your own. So that was what Obamacare in its convoluted way was trying to solve for, was to say, okay, for the people who don't get insurance from their employer, we're going to do some things to employer-sponsored insurance to make it more expensive as well. But if you don't buy insurance from your employer and you don't get it from the government for that 10 million or 20 million people out there. Those are the people who we're going to try to, uh, uh, you know, we're going to give them this very different system that Obamacare completely upended and changed. And unfortunately, Obamacare made that system much more expensive than it was before. So it used to be pre-Obamacare, especially if you lived in certain parts of the country that had really fun well-functioning insurance markets. California, strangely enough, was one of them. Uh, you could buy pretty inexpensive health insurance. So pre-Obamacare, you could get a really good health insurance plan for about 100 bucks or 60 bucks a month. Once Obamacare kicked in, that was wiped out. Now it's mm -hmm. 300, 400 bucks a month for the same plan. And so a lot of those inexpensive options that you could get in a relatively lightly regulated insurance market, depending on the state, uh, those were wiped out. And that's why something like crowd health is needed because. Uh, you know, the, the conventional insurance market is no longer an option. If you're, if you get insurance from your employer or you get it on your own, it costs about the same. Yeah. Now, it didn't used it, to. I'm, I'm just wondering when we, if we go back to the comparison with, with Switzerland where they are, you know, half of what we are per capita, I can't imagine the doctors are getting paid significantly different and doctors are only 8% of the healthcare cost anyway. Pharma. No, they are. They're getting paid less. They're getting paid less. So is it significant in Switzerland? Yeah. So uh, particularly specialists. So primary care, but both primary care doctors and specialists make way more money in the U.S. than they make in all these other countries. Um, but you know what's funny is if you actually talk to the doctors in these other countries and you ask them, "Would you rather be in the U.S. and make three times as much or ten times as much?" They say, "No. You know, I, I have a pretty good life here, and you know, I have a pretty low hassle factor in terms of." 
having to deal with the system. You know, I'm able to just see my patients and get get their care paid for and uh, make a decent living. And they're not they don't sweat it too much, actually. So it's kind of interesting if you if you talk to doctors in these other other countries, they're not that miserable, even though they're making a lot less money than American doctors are. So it says average in Switzerland. Oh, it's that's in CHF. I don't know what the doctor. Well, CHF is USD are about the same now. It's about the same. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a little bit old. General practitioners who pro- provide primary health care are paid a median salary of two thirty seven. Um, the United States two thirty seven K. That's two hundred thirty seven CHF. Two hundred thirty seven thousand CHF. That seems high, but I'll, I'll check it out. Um, a world but in salaries. General, this yeah, there was says, there was a there was a there was an article a couple of years ago, a study that looked at all the OECD countries and compared them on healthcare costs. And their takeaway was that um, U- U.S. ranked number one for physician compensation in both primary care and specialist care, and they also concluded that uh, that uh, that was a big driver of why healthcare in America was more expensive in other countries. It's not the only reason. As you said, the prescription drugs are also more expensive here. Uh, the hospital care is more expensive yeah, here. But, uh, but doctors let's, let's, definitely are Let's go deeper into more. this, right? Because doctors, mm-hmm. the, the amount of salary uh, that goes to, do- or the amount of expenses going to do- doctors as a percent of total healthcare is only 8%. So we have a million doctors yeah. that make 300 grand a year. We have a $4 trillion Four point one to four point three trillion dollar healthcare expenses. You kind of back that into almost eight percent ad benefits. You get eight percent of healthcare spend is on docs, and so yeah. let's just say they, you know, Switzerland is half of that. You know, so it's we're saving four percent there. You know, the prescription d- drugs is another three hundred to four hundred billion or three, yeah, three hundred mm-hmm. to four hundred billion. So that's another seven and a half to ten percent. Even if they're, you know, getting half of that, that's another four percent. So we're still. What I guess my my point here is we're still a long way away from fifty percent. And so I'm wondering where the excess pr- profit <laughs> is is going because it's either got to be in administration, it's got to be in horrifically run, you know, uh, hospital systems. Or somewhere because the hospitals are taking the majority of the dollars, whether it's directly by the hospital or doctors working within the hospital and therefore getting paid to hospital rates. And so I'm I'm just wondering where and it doesn't take a whole lot more to build a hospital in Switzerland than it does in the United States. It probably costs more, is my guess. Um so where where where's the leakage? You know, there's about forty percent here or more of our healthcare costs are getting leaked somehow, somewhere. And where where is that being captured? Is it by health insurance companies? Is it by hospitals? Who are the other stakeholders here that are taking you know a big chunk of this these dollars that's causing the you know in my quick math they're forty percent plus of our healthcare dollars in leakage when you compare it directly with Switzerland. So if you make me a co-host on our Zoom call here, I can share with you some charts uh, that get to exactly all these points. Uh, let's see if we can do that here. I don't know um, if we can do that. Let me see. If, if you just, if you may, if you go to participants on the Zoom call and you say, make me co-host, then I can share my screen. And then we can go through some graphics that will, that will illustrate this in a way that, that might help you with the people who are watching this on video as opposed to audio. Make host. How about that? 
There we go. Perfect. Now I can share my screen and I'm going to show you a, a couple charts. Okay, so this is a chart that's breaking down national health expenditures, which is an official government uh, set of statistics. Uh, you'll see that the three largest categories of national, oops, uh, resume share. Okay, it says my sharing is paused. I don't know why, but um, uh, I can see it. You can see it. Let me try it again just oh. to make sure. Did it go away? Let's see. Okay, let's try this. Okay, now it's going. I'm yep. screen sharing. Good. So you see here that the national uh, health expenditure breakdown is uh, the largest category is hospital care at 27%. The next largest category is physician services at 17%. And the third largest category is prescription drugs retail. That means drugs you get at a pharmacy, not drugs you get through a, a physician's office or a hospital is 8%. Everything else is 48%. Now that's for the overall total of health expenditures by the U.S., if you look at insurance premiums in the private sector, meaning for people under the age of 65, so people who are not on Medicare, uh, people who get insurance either through Obamacare or through their employer, you see it broken down a different way. Hospital care is about uh, 18, 19%. Uh, outpatient care, meaning at a doctor's office, is 40%. And drugs are 23%. Now, not all that is physician hmm. directly doctor costs. Some of that's non-doctor costs like lab tests or nurses or whatever. Uh, but, but actually, uh, outpatient care is the biggest component of spending in terms of private insurance premiums. And physician and prescription drugs, uh, not just retail, but overall prescription drugs is also a pretty giant component, right? So hospital costs for the non-elderly population are, are important, but they're actually in third place. Outpatient is number one. Drugs are second, inpatient is third. Whereas overall, national health expenditures, it's hospitals one, physicians two, drugs third. The other thing I wanted to show you was this point about the um, about the uh, about what doctors are paid, and what you'll see here in this chart. If I didn't lose my screen sharing, let's oh, just make sure. That. Here we go. Uh, so this is a, a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, in 2018. That's titled "Healthcare Spending in the United States and Other High-Income Countries," and this is comparing. Uh, Switzerland is not on this list, uh, actually. But if you look at the United States and you compare it to basically all these other developed countries, it's way ahead. And the, the quote from the article is that increasing rates of outpatient spending and remuneration of clinicians is a major contributor to the cost difference between the United States and other countries. U.S. ranked number one for outpatient care in terms of the, the cost, how much we spend on it. And the U.S. also ranked number one in terms of what we pay generalist physicians and specialist physicians. So uh, the U.S. pays doctors the most, and we pay the drug companies the most, and we pay the hospitals the most. We pay everyone the most. But the doctor side, particularly specialist care, so if you go to an orthopedic surgeon or uh, you know some other specialist, that's those are the people who are really racking up the dough. And I mean, that's why most medical students don't become primary care doctors. They want to be neurosurgeons. They want to be heart surgeons because that's what pays in our system, pays a lot. Um, I tore my Achilles a, a few years back playing soccer, and the anesthesiologist charged me more than the orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Why? Because there's one group 
of anesthesiologists that controls the entire Austin market. And so they can charge whatever they want, whereas there's at least some competition for your surgeon. And all this goes to a, a point that's really important to, to what you do, Andy, which is, you know, these, I, I have conventional health insurance. So the health insurance just pays the bills. Whereas with, at least with crowd health, you're, you're able to look at those things and saying, that's totally irrational. We're not going to, we're not going to pay the anesthesiologist who, who just administered my anesthesia more than we paid the actual doctor who fixed my Achilles. Um, we're going to, we're going to negotiate fair prices for that. And you've been pretty successful at that. And that's that bringing that uh, kind of discipline back into healthcare is incredibly important. Last question for you. Um, and, and we'll, we'll see how long the conversation lasts. I'm not sure if we're going to agree with this or not. Um, you know, one of the, the things, and it, I think one of the points that we made, especially over the last 10 minutes is it's a pretty complex, um, system when you take a look at where all the costs are going, right? It's, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly who's, who's take, who, who are the, who are the rent seekers in this? It's, 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 it's kind of difficult to figure out. Well, I think it's almost everybody. There's, there's <laughs> a, the there's problem. a middleman component of this that I don't know if where that was on that chart. Um, maybe nowhere. Um, you know, there's brokers and there's all kinds of people who are, who are swiping things here and there. Um, it's clear to me that the hospitals want the prices to go up. They want to charge as much as they can. There's no question there. The question I have for you, Ovik, is um, do do you believe that health insurance plans, given the kind of market economics that you talked about earlier, where where the the end user like like me, I'm not on insurance, I'm insured, but if I was a part of a company that had insurance, I'm not the end buyer, and so they, therefore, I'm not negotiating with the insurance company, and therefore, the insurance company doesn't do all they need to do probably as my agent to negotiate, you know, best prices with, with the end user. Plus you have this new scenario within the fully insured component where they can only max a profit, profit plus admin costs of 15%. Do we really think that the insurance companies would like to see prices go down? Do they have any economic incentive for healthcare prices to go down? Insurers have conflicting incentives. So on the one hand, on a macro level, they benefit from healthcare being more expensive because if your profit margin is 5% uh, and that stays 5% because of government regulations or otherwise, then if your revenue is higher, 5% of a bigger number is more profit. So you actually, in that way, perversely benefit from healthcare being more expensive because uh, 5% of a bigger number is more money for you. On so the flip just putting side, that in numbers real quick, if you have a premium of uh, $1,000 a month and right. you know the insurance plan can only take 15% for administrative and profit, that yeah, but means the, they can only... Cost, yeah, yeah like they can the, only the, take 150. The, so yeah. the, the, but the 150 then pays for some of their people too. So yes, there's a certain absolutely. amount of overhead uh-huh. they have. So like their net... Their actual profit margins are like five percent. So for every thousand dollars in premium, they might make fifty bucks. Fifty bucks, say. but to make sixty-five bucks or you know fifty-five yeah. bucks, they need to charge, you know, eleven hundred dollars, right? If that math is yeah. correct. And so right. they actually exactly. have an incentive. This is my argument, and you can tell me where I'm off on this. But there's there's this perverse incentive where the higher the premium goes, 
the more money that the insurance plan can make. And most of these, they're either for-profit entities, i.e. Aetna or CVS Aetna, United Healthcare, Cigna, or they're non-profit entities that kind of act a little bit like for-profit entities, like Blue Cross Blue Shields of the world. Um, you know, is is that a is that a fair argument, or is that too simplistic? Uh, it's a fair argument, and it's too simplistic. So there, there's two things. There's what we've just described, which is a, which is the most powerful incentive. So in general, insurers in the current model benefit from higher healthcare spending because they're that $50 out of 1,000 that they get can grow if we all spend more on healthcare. Um, in a given year, once they've collected your premium, they have an incentive to keep costs down because they make more money in that given year because they've already set the premium for that year if they keep your spending down. So in a given year, they actually have an incentive to try to keep costs down. But overall, over the long term, they have an incentive for costs to go up. Now, it, that's a, a big part of the reason for that is because you don't pay for the insurance yourself. You get it from the government or your employer. In a world like Switzerland, where you're shopping for the insurance and the insurers are competing for your business, then the incentives are very different because, yes, all else being equal, insurers benefit if healthcare is more expensive. But if they don't, can't run their business efficiently and they have to charge you a higher premium because they can't do a good job of negotiating lower prices on your behalf, they're going to lose customers to that insurer down the street that does a better job yeah. of negotiating a lower prices. So what really matters in the context of insurance is the fact that we don't shop for it. And so there's no price competition between insurers for your business. Whereas the great thing about the crowd health model is you just pull out of that altogether and say, no, you know, we're going to negotiate those prices based on a direct cash payment to the provider, to the doctor or the, the hospital or what have you. And uh, that uh, that model works because at the end of the day, if you actually have a normal price negotiation with a hospital like you would for any other service, they're capable of being reasonable. Uh, but but the but the, the the system they have, the cozy system they have with the insurers is totally different. So the, the way that you just kind of outlined the incentive structure there for insurance plans feels like I'm getting double screwed. For one, it's they you do, they want the long-term premiums to go up, which means I'm paying more over the long period. Then in any one year, they want the the claims to be lower, which means that there is an incentive to deny claims because they're not going to actually re, be able to really impact your health in a single 12-month calendar year. There's a, a, a lawsuit that I think it was Cigna uh, and, and others, I believe, allegedly just straight denied claims <laughs> without even looking at them based upon some algorithm that they put internally. And so you have this incentive to deny claims. 48 million claims on healthcare.gov, according to Kaiser Family Foundation, were denied last year or maybe it's a 2021 issue. Um, and so, you know, that that seems like double a double doozy if you are a, you know, consumer of, of health insurance. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, and that's, and, and, and to be clear, like, this is the reason why it's a double doozy is because of the way the government has structured our yeah. healthcare system. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, but the, the, insur the incentives, the economic incentives that insurers have 
are de- determined by and defined by the way the government has set up our healthcare system where you have to buy insurance for your employer and all this other stuff. So, you know, one of the reasons why doctors prefer cash paying patients over insured patients is for this reason. Like if, I, if I'm a doctor and I deal with you and I want to prescribe you a certain drug or order a certain test or whatever it is, the insurer might fight me on that. And I have to go fill out all this paperwork called prior authorization to convince the, the insurance company that I'm not trying to you know, put one over on them and that this is a legitimate uh, use of this particular medication or lab test. If I'm a cash paying, if you're a cash paying patient, I'm a doctor, I don't have to deal with any of that paperwork. You pay me, I do the test. You trust me to, to do what's in your interests, and hopefully I am doing what's in your interests. And, uh, and, and that way, there's no paperwork. So doctors love, and, 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 and that's one of the reasons why a, a company like CrowdHealth is able to get the prices you're able to get. Because if I'm a doctor, there's economic value in not having to fill out all that paperwork and just mm-hmm. being able to have a direct transactional relationship with the patient. Um, and so people are willing to accept less money because, you know, there's zero paperwork involved, which has a cost, an economic cost to the doctor. We started talking about freedom. We ended here with a lot of healthcare. Um, so to go full circle, is that is the healthcare industry the least free industry the, the, in, in the United States? Or is there another industry in the United States that is less free than than healthcare? It feels oh, to me oh, like yeah. there's less free market kind of forces happening in in healthcare than almost any other um, industry out there. I'm sure you might be able to think of one or two, but it's got to be up there in the top top two or three. Uh, well, I, I would I would uh, healthcare is pretty bad, but there's definitely uh, industries that are worse. I mean, the one that comes to mind to me the least the least free sector of the economy is nuclear energy. Mm. I and mean, we, we, we created this government agency called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission 50 years ago. And since the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been in existence, there's been one nuclear power plant that's been approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission over the last 50 years, even though the technology around nuclear energy has, has gotten so much better and so much safer. You know, France gets 80% or 70% of its electricity from carbon-free electricity from nuclear energy. Ontario gets half of its uh, electricity from carbon energy. They don't even use coal anymore in those two places because nuclear energy generates all their electricity or so much of it. And yet here we are banning nuclear energy effectively through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and making it impossible to, to, um, to build new nuclear plants. And yet we're going on and making everyone pay more for their electricity and their gas because of the climate when we don't have to do any of that. If we just actually had a nuclear... Uh, based power grid, uh, we could reduce carbon emissions massively without actually imposing all these costs on everybody. everybody. And, and so that to me is the, is the absolute worst example, at least when it comes to healthcare. You have healthcare, you have choices in where you can get mm-hmm. your healthcare, and we have a very innovative system for all its faults. So we have, we have certain things to be grateful for, for, for all that's going wrong. I love the uh, sense of optimism to to end it. So, Oic, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Good seeing you as always. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks at our board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Have a good one, too. bud. You too.